0: What's up, everyone, and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we cover how the environment, our society, and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to talk about the preliminary injunction in California this Monday that said Uber and Lyft must classify their drivers as employees. And then we discuss McDonald's suing its former CEO to get the money back it paid him after he engaged in a consensual relationship with a subordinate. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. As of Monday, August 10th, Uber and Lyft have 10 days to appeal a California judge's ruling that both must classify their drivers as employees. Uber said it planned to file an immediate emergency appeal to block the ruling from going into effect. And it's been ready to do that because this has all been going on since May when California Attorney General Javier Bethera, along with city attorneys of Los Angeles, San Francisco, and San Diego, some of Uber and Lyft's biggest markets, sued the companies saying that they were misclassifying their drivers as independent contractors when they should be employees under this new law that went into effect on January 1st called AB5. So my guest and colleague today, Bentley Kaplan, has been covering this ongoing saga since the beginning, and I asked him first to break down the economic situation Uber and Lyft are in.
1: So the... The economic argument around the business model is a, is a big deal for both of these companies um, because ne- neither one has been making huge profits from its business line. And and a lot of that has, you know, has got to do with an argument around scale. So they are doubling down on trying to get their, their companies as big as possible and get as many riders as possible. Um, and And... Any kind of misstep along the way is going to be a real problem for them. The ruling
0: in California is one of those missteps. Uber is threatening to close shop in California, and Lyft released a report saying that if it had to treat its drivers as employees, it would mean that 300,000 of them would no longer be able to drive due to the cost implications. In its report, Lyft built in these legal considerations that would have to happen if they had employees instead of independent contractors. They would have to pay them at least a minimum wage. They would have to provide overtime compensation. They would have to pay for rest periods. They'd have to reimburse the drivers, the cost of driving for the company, especially the amount of miles that they would have to go through, personal mileage. And not to state the obvious here, but things change considerably for a company when they take that step and decide to provide employment status to the people that make the money. For us, when we look at a company's exposure to ESG risks and opportunities, there are two factors we look at when talking about labor risks.
1: The one is risk exposure. So how risky is the business you're doing? And then the other side is your risk management, which is how well are you addressing that risk? If we look at something like labor management, which is the the key issue that we would look at for, for Uber and Lyft we have the the risk exposure side so that is you know how many employees are you dealing with
0: more employees mean more things can go wrong especially if you are in a riskier industry like meat processing or mining a large workforce also means the company needs to have much more robust controls around labor management in general better safety procedures better engagement policies better policies around layoffs and employee turnover but uber and lyft don't have all this stuff because while they have a massive workforce, their drivers, again, are considered independent contractors, which means the companies might have trouble building a loyal and engaged workforce, and it might mean investors might have difficulty understanding how that workforce actually feels to be working for the companies.
1: If you if you manage that workforce well, you could have, you know, productivity increases but you could also start building things like you know company loyalty um at the moment you're talking you're hearing about drivers not really necessarily preferring lyft or uber they don't have any loyalty to one or the other which then you know gives room for a a lower sort of a lower price competitor to come in to to sort of local areas and you know drivers start working for them instead because they pay slightly better but
0: that doesn't really concern uber and lyft at the moment because in their own words they don't think their drivers want these sort of benefits because it would remove what the company has been saying the sort of worker freedom that their drivers want and deserve here's what a lyft spokesperson told the new york times on tuesday august 11th drivers quote do not want to be employees full stop end quote Uber said something of the same. The companies are fighting this decision because they basically operate as loss, as Bentley said. And the reason they can offer these really low-cost rides and still kind of be a company with an ongoing concern is because drivers subsidize the low cost of rides by not making much in compensation. And this engagement, this kind of connection... Doesn't seem to bother the market. Investors are not too worried about these emerging risks companies seem to face at the moment.
1: Like part of it is also the, the it's this weird thing where the companies are losing money, but they're, they're st- their share prices aren't, you know, are not negative. Like there's, there's someone making money off these companies, right? And it's not the drivers.
0: But it is the shareholders and it is the executive team. We collect executive pay data on both Uber and Lyft. And Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi makes about 34 million USD a year, and Lyft CEO Logan Green makes about 19 million USD a year. And both companies' executive team have these early vesting provisions that offers poor alignment with shareholder interest. Which, as we look at the industry's peers, this compensation and this vested interest isn't too different than the norm, to be frank. But what Uber and Lyft have done is create what we call a precarious workforce. They have about 3 million independent contractors at the moment. And when it's used extensively, such as in this case, a precarious workforce can crumble when it's hit with more than one stressor. This ruling being one of them and the COVID-19 pandemic being the other.
1: And at the same time, in in a lot of states... Um, you don't have the same kind of worker protections that you would have in in, in places like Europe. So you have these employees that are falling between um, between these very big cracks at a time when a lot of companies are talking about stakeholder capitalism. So I think, you know, we're having all these factors, you know, intersecting at the same time right before an election. So it really is a it's a very um, it's a very difficult place, I think, for, for Uber and Lyft at the moment. And I think it's like I said, it's a long journey ahead Um but a lot of eyes will be watching to see where they end on this pendulum in terms of you know how much how much labor force risk are these companies going to have to take on, in order to keep operating their their business models, um, which are which are pretty low margin at the moment. But there's there's definitely an, an area between you know your traditional permanent employees working an eight hour shift um, and you know a contract worker who can just work hour to hour. You know and and that is you know I think that's where the conversation is going to be going moving forward. Uber
0: CEO tried to answer that in an August 10th opinion article for the New York Times where he argued for a third way of employment, where the flexibility of the gig economy remained, but there were some employee-like protections. The question for the company's investors will now be, how far should the company go to appease its critics, and how sustainable is an economy based on a precarious workforce, Really? Let's say you're a company board and you find out your CEO has been uncouth and you decide to fire them, but you don't want them going out and blabbing about what they did or they were just a good CEO. So you decide to give them an exiting pay package worth millions. And later it comes out that the CEO is actually way worse than you supposedly do new. And not only that, it's in the press that you paid this problematic CEO a lot of money. You, the board, can then decide to use a legal tool called a clawback. A clawback is used to reclaim compensation promised to a CEO upon their firing. And on Monday, McDonald's felt they needed to do some addressing with their former chief executive, Steve Easterbrook, that was fired after it was discovered that he had a consensual relationship with an employee. The reason for McDonald's new felt rage was because another employee came out and said Mr. Easterbrook had a sexual relationship with another subordinate while he was running the company. So the board said, okay, we want our money back. You not only lied to us about the type and amount of relationships you had with subordinates, but we already got bad press for the situation, so let's have at it. To discuss this, I'm now joined by our governance guru, Rick Marshall, to help me parse through this very odd situation we have here at McDonald's. So, Rick, let's start with the clawbacks. How long have these things been around?
2: Well, clawbacks have been around for a long time, but um, they've not been used much in the United States, and they've only really been given a formal seal of approval since Dodd-Frank, the passage of Dodd-Frank. and even there, my understanding is that the SEC has still not implemented formal rules around uh, how they would define a clawback and under what circumstances it can be enacted. Uh, so it's been pretty much left to um, each individual company to decide how they want to um, adopt a, a clawback rule. Uh, most have. Um, and certainly they're very common in Europe. Um There are also a couple of other approaches to this same uh, idea, which we track. Boards have
0: actually been using more clawbacks, apparently. Hertz board filed suit in 2019 against several former executives, including its former CEO, CFO and general counsel that tried to get back 70 million USD. Wells Fargo's board tried to claw back 75 million USD in 2017 from two executives that the company said was most to blame for the massive fraud scandal during that time. And these are still being litigated, by the way. Rick, do you think in the future this will change how CEOs are compensated on their departure?
2: I think there's a lot more scrutiny um, happening now around CEO pay in general. And I think we're going to see even more of it post-pandemic. I really think this next proxy season uh, we'll, we'll see really really close scrutiny of of pay practices and what decisions boards made
0: what question would you ask the board about this whole situation or what questions would you ask in the future if a board found itself in a similar situation which undoubtedly
2: they will for me the more more really more important question here um speaks to the whole culture at at a company like mcdonald's you know how did this happen in the first place how did it get unnoticed for so long Um, how did it become as serious as as it turns out it did uh, without anyone knowing were other senior managers at uh, McDonald's involved or complicit in some way or were they uh, aware of it but were simply silent you know there's so many questions to ask about this and the board of course is tasked now with uh, cleaning up the mess but you you have to say okay, where was the board when this was going on? Was, was there no hint of impropriety? Um, were there no whistleblower um, disclosures that came out? You know what what happened here?
0: What's also fascinating to me is that McDonald's has now put a price on its reputation, which which doesn't often happen. The company is saying, okay, our rep and our culture is at least worth forty million USD, and it's definitely. I think something that we've talked about before the call, it's definitely a departure from the disclose the scandal quietly and move-on culture that corporations seem to have had back in the day. And McDonald's is saying definitively it is going to try to ensure that everyone understands at the company that if it doesn't reflect its values, it's going to have no qualms about taking them on publicly. And now whether those values extend to its massive franchisee base Who operates most of McDonald's locations is yet to be seen, but that might be a story for another week. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Rick and Bentley for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist, and I wanted to thank you so much for listening. Just as a heads up, we're going to be taking a summer break for the last couple weeks of August, and we will be back the first week of September. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe as well. That always helps and keep fighting for whatever you're fighting for out there. Talk to you in September.